Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. India is the world's most populous democracy, and also one that is facing challenges. This week, we focus on the Indian government's efforts to create a bureaucratic apparatus to enforce what appears to be an ever more frequent number of requests for social media platforms to remove content deemed inappropriate for one reason or another. And for this week's episode, I'm joined by the author of a recent piece on this subject on Tech Policy Press, who helped to pull together the panel of experts, all based in India, that you'll hear from today. So my name is Angraj Singh, and I am a graduate student at the Newmark J School, pursuing my master's in engagement journalism. Well, I'm so glad to have you working with me this summer. Um, and your first piece focuses on India, its IT rules, the relationship to free expression. What's going on over there? So in May of last year, India implemented new rules concerning tech platforms and digital media that many human rights observers feared would give the government new powers to limit free expression. Now, just as the Ministry of Electronics and Information Technology has proposed amendments that would appear to further increase government control over social media platforms, the wave of removals has targeted posts by journalists, civil society groups, and foreign governments. Can you give me some examples of some of these removals? So... For example, on June 26th, Rana Ayub, who's a Washington Post journalist and opinion columnist, her account was withheld in India by Twitter after she criticized a local court's judgment allowing a survey of a mosque that she says sets the stage for a demolition of yet another mosque in India. And Mohammed Zubair, who is a co-founder of Out News, is sort of a fact-checking site that focuses on misinformation and disinformation on social media and mainstream media. He also received a same or similar email from Twitter in which it cited India's IT rules. And he was arrested in relation to tweets that were allegedly considered objectionable. And he is also largely a critic of uh, India's prime minister, uh, Narendra Modi, and his ruling party, uh, BJP. There definitely seems to be a sort of a trend in which either civil society groups or or journalists or other folks who are critical of the government or of the ruling party in India, those are the people who are sort of being targeted. And even in the past couple of days, there have been more of these Twitter account withholding notices um, going out. What happens to someone's account? Do they, uh, you know, find themselves sort of removed summarily? Is it uh, regional or uh, geographically constrained? Yeah. So when when somebody receives that notice, another user will sort of see that this account has been withheld in response to a legal demand, and then you'll get this learn more thing. However, it is geographically restricted, right? So all of these tweets from these accounts are unavailable in India, but if you just change your location, you can see them from anywhere else. So for example, if I want to see Ranayab's account in the United States, I can see it. But if I changed my location to India, I I wouldn't be able to see it. The regulations set broad obligations of social media companies with over 5 million registered users. As a result of the IT rules, social media companies were 
required to open offices in India and appoint local resident grievance officers as quote-unquote intermediaries who are tasked with complying with takedown orders from any government agency within 36 hours. Executives from Twitter, YouTube, uh, Facebook, etc. Could, could go to prison if they don't follow through on these government requests. They can be held personally liable and face prison terms up to seven years for failing to comply. I understand the government is even issuing takedown notices for songs? Yeah, uh, the prominent example would be about uh, sort of like a uh, murder seat rapper, Sidi Musawala, whose song uh, titled S.Y.L. was removed after a legal complaint from the government. And uh, this video highlighted the water dispute of a canal in Punjab and uh, the state of the 1984 Sikh genocide. And during the time of the removal, the video had 27 million views. You spoke to a range of experts for this piece, and luckily we were able to get a few of them on the phone for a follow-up podcast discussion. I'm Neeti Biani. I work with uh, the Internet Society as their policy and advocacy manager for India, and I'm based in New Delhi. Hi, so I'm Tejasi Panjia. Uh, I work at Internet Freedom Foundation as their associate policy counsel, currently in Delhi, New Delhi. Uh, hi, I'm Apar. I'm the executive director of the Internet Freedom Foundation based in New Delhi, India. Um, so I want to kind of put a, a broad question to the group and sort of each of you can think about how, how you might sort of appropriately like to, to answer it. You know, we're going to talk today about questions around free expression, um, social media, India, um, these new IT rules, the amendments that have been poured about them. Um, but I wanted to start just with a bit of context. You know, a lot of my listeners, of course, are in the U.S. Uh, or in Europe. Um, they may not be so intimately familiar with Indian affairs. How would you characterize this moment in, in Indian uh, politics? Um, what is the sort of broader context that we're working within when we look at these questions around Internet freedoms in India? Thanks, Justin. I'll take this up. Uh, so um, India uh, in its place right now, I think the, uh, the good empirical basis for people to understand where India is right uh, right now is like just looking at the various indices which are being released uh, quite often, um, which are pointing towards a rapid decline in media freedom or um, democratic rights. And uh, this is matching with uh, a growing amount of digitization. So over a decade, there's been a tenfold increase in the number of Indians connected to the internet. There's close to 600 million internet users. Large number of them are on online platforms. But at the same time, you notice a worrying trend in terms of decrease of freedoms and liberty, which is very essential to a functioning democracy such as India. I can supplement that with maybe like a broader socio-political context as well. India's... uh sort of seen a very rich history of, of where it used to be and where it's headed. And, you know, we have, we're, we're one of the most populated countries in the world, right? But that also means that we have a very varied, um, you know, diverse demographic. And we have a lot of cultures and, and you know, um, people from all walks of life. We have one of the, one of the highest spoken number of languages in the world. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting fabric, uh, that that you know India represents, and uh, 
it's also one of the most dynamic sort of geopolitically strategic regions of the world and uh, till quite recently india india had you know a, a strong sense of upholding democratic values and freedoms but you know very much like apar said we're moving closer and closer to our security and our privacy being questioned especially you know as the lines between our online lives and our lives uh, off off the internet are being blurred and along with that we do see a stepping up of um state surveillance and uh, the the motives behind why all of this is happening uh, maybe you know we can get into uh, as we as we talk further but uh, completely agree with the par we we we've been through you know a quite a big transition in terms of you know where we started a few years ago and where we are right now uh, with the with the more sort of more ubiquitous use of the internet and people getting online and you know information and data getting digitized so it's been it's been an interesting decade and a half we can talk about that further um you, you know it's been now more than a year since uh, well since the ministry put forward these new IT rules and i might just ask a kind of contextualizing question about those as well um i you know they didn't come out of nowhere what do you think was the sort of you know mindset of the government in crafting these rules um i'm i'm sure they didn't set out to say you know we want to we want to create problems for free expression we want to you know uh cause issues with digital rights there there's a there's sort of a broader background i mean i i sort of felt in reading them um a year ago that there was a sort of sense that that they mimicked in some ways some of the rules that had been around you know media ownership in india um for some decades that kind of thing so i, I don't know if anybody can characterize where the it rules came from like the sort of stew of ideas and uh, influences that 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 led to those uh, thanks justin the it rules in the present avatar in 2021 do build on uh, past mistakes failures and missteps uh, and i think india is not alone i think this is a large question on where does regulation lie on the internet is still being discovered i think better by others than by us now having said that the it rules have a long and rich history in terms of um being a point of contention even being litigated i was one of the lawyers in the case which uh, in which uh, the rules were challenged in their previous version uh, which were made in 2011 that's called the shreya single case the supreme court actually gave a judgment on it and said that uh, the safe harbor framework which is under section 79 of the it act under which they have been made and only provide a process for notice and take down needs to be uh, needs to be recognized as being activated only when actual knowledge is there with any intermediary which means that there's a government notice or a judicial order rather than a user complaining to a platform because that would be a content moderation practice that wouldn't be actual knowledge in terms of the immunity going away if the platform refuses a take down notice from the government those are distinct use cases now what's happened over a period of time the technology has become much much more attached to our daily lives number of internet users has grown in india the social impact and the individual rights of people are impacted by online social media primarily that's the focus of the it rules even now and there has been a reactionary attempt looking at various issues which 
emanates from a kind of a tech clash to certain issues of nationalistic chauvinistic nationalism that these are silicon valley platforms and you find a iteration which comes through which makes the it rules within this notice and takedown framework more and more severe now what happens is that in 2019 i think so they put um, 18 they towards the end of 18 they put up for consultation and there's a lull for about 2 years then on a online streaming platform uh, in february in 2021 there's a show which is on political and religious themes and certain people feel that uh, online video streaming platforms such as netflix or amazon prime are get, being given too much liberty there's no regulatory framework and they send a series of emails to the ministry of electronics and it's which makes these rules under the notice and takedown framework for intermediaries now acting under that the ministry of electronics and it with the ministry of information broadcasting makes these rules which have three parts and the first is definitions the second is on social media companies and intermediaries but also now applies to messaging platforms specifically weakening encryption and the third part now applies to online digital news media as well as online video streaming and it is open to question how within a notice and takedown mechanism you are regulating the last category i'll just leave and conclude this with one sentence is that the it rules today essentially if you look at it uh, not from a much more regulatory or legal lens are essentially the principal regulatory instrument which is governing the experience of most internet users in india could i add to that maybe you know i want to take a couple of steps back from where apar started i think i think he's you know added the meat that the bones needed especially uh, you know the context in which these rules came about but i just want to sort of take a couple of steps back and talk about exactly what the intention of this government is it's very clear from the various conversations that you know stakeholders have had with the government that the government wants to regulate content available on the internet now the 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 first thing to understand about how the internet functions is that it is a layered infrastructure right um the infrastructural layers of the internet have nothing to do with the content available on the internet so so a really good analogy that i like to use is think about plumbing if you need water in your house it's important to have piping and you know taps and all of that groundwork ready for you to receive um you know fresh clean water when you demand i like to think about the layers of the internet like that plumbing and you know those faucets available in your kitchen or wherever sure you know there are there are conversations happening across the world about whether big tech should be regulated whether you know big tech should be broken up the the ills that you know big tech is perpetuating but i want to i want to say sort of two things to that most of the things that we see amplified on a lot of social media platforms that governments across the world including india want to regulate these are socio political issues that existed way before the internet it's not like child sexual abuse did not exist before the internet right it's just become an issue for which technology and tech platforms become an easy scapegoat the second thing i want to say is you know if you want to regulate content firstly what that means for free expression and you know freedom of speech is a whole different conversation and you know i don't want to get into it right now but what that means for content moderation is that very often governments in their endeavor to moderate content online end up knowingly or unknowingly 
impact the infrastructural layer uh, layers of the internet and that's exactly what apart talked about that the moment you try and regulate say end to end encrypted platforms right uh you are giving up not just individual security but you're also tra- you're also risking national security as the encryption that's available on our smartphone is linked to the encryption that keeps all of us safe and you know that keeps our critical infrastructure safe you're you're targeting the privacy and and you know rights of millions of users on the internet and there is absolutely no assessment that's been conducted before these rules were notified has there been an impact assessment conducted or you know has there been an open sort of multi stakeholder consultation process no and i think these are the sort of things we need to think about you know that the government needs to talk to multiple stakeholders who sort of can inform these processes can feed into these processes and uh, make them robust and ensure that they don't have effects like um you know risking the privacy and security of millions of people and with extraterritorial effects like it's not just limited to indian borders just to add to that i think the it rules just before uh, they were brought in in a very rushed manner i would say um the, the one event that really i would say just ignited all of this was the backlash that was received against the Amazon Amazon Prime video web series that Apar was talking about and uh, because a scene in the show was labeled as religiously offensive and uh, consequently the makers of the show did modify the show but you know what came after that was just a lot of requests uh, to the ministry to regulate online content and again this also came from large request to regulate fake speech uh, on the internet and the harmful effects of fake speech but like niti was saying a lot of this uh, a lot of a lot of these rules came without public consultation didn't follow that transparent process that it needed to as a result of which a lot of these concerns with which maybe which was the intent of behind releasing these rules doesn't reflect for instance the compliance report that is released by all of these social media platforms don't release numbers on the fake speech content that they have taken down this clearly is a loophole here this clearly is reflecting a not a well thought out uh, process it's a reflection of an of a process that was not transparent uh, and was not well thought out and i suppose instead of maybe doing the multi stakeholder process and the process that you would like to see occur instead you're seeing these amendments put forward um which would appear to you give the government uh, more powers create um even more of a a sort of bureaucracy around uh this question can can someone i don't i don't know who would like to to do it just for the sake of my listener th- these amendments and this um you know grievance committee for instance that it creates uh would appear to create um what what is happening here um what are, what are we what can we expect to see uh occur what type of bureaucracy gets invented uh, in india to sort of manage um questions of social media content and and its appropriateness justin i think a good way to look into the future uh, is to see how a government has regulated other forms of media because they are viewing the internet also as another uh, conventional uh, media such as radio or broadcast television and here uh, india has had government committees which have been established firstly these government committees lack independence and autonomy they are composed of bureaucrats 
who are doing the day to day work uh, which is directed by the ministers who head these specific ministerial departments and uh, the committees by themselves are not then staffed and it's important to note by people who may be trained in uh, law in uh, aspects of media freedom in uh, essentially assessing the merits of a claim itself so, uh, another thing which will may will happen is that given that they will be uh, appointing people who are not having uh, training they are not having proper procedures they won't sit on a day to day basis they won't determine them on a day to day basis so when you take this existing institutional apparatus and just plant it for uh, essentially hearing appeals of people who are dissatisfied with the content moderation decisions of a platform which not only includes a notice and takedown uh, request such as a user filing a complaint that please take down somebody else's content it may also include the platform itself removing content of a user where the user will be able to appeal to the government but again the government not as a judicial body but essentially as a extension of a ministerial office the sheer number of internet social media users in india and who access social media platforms is uh, nearing 300 to 400 million for a platform such as um, meta facebook or for uh, whatsapp also it will be applicable if in case they disable account will be somewhat similar in terms of youtube i think so people in india a lot of people in india use it as a search engine but some people may still have logins but if you just take facebook as a representative example i think there are about um, uh, we were looking it up as per the transparency reports about uh, 30 million pieces of content removed every month uh, about 3 crore something like that my calculation but even if a small fraction of them are appealed by a user to facebook and they are not happy with the decision with the content moderation and then file of appeal further before this grievance appellate committee which is what is proposed under these new rules what ends up happening is that the ministry with lack of capacity without training without having clear rules for transparency that will publish its orders gets close to thousands of appeals on a conservative estimate on a monthly basis from just one platform think about all social media intermediaries now in a situation like that of course it won't be able to adjudicate everything there won't be any practice guidance within the rules how it picks and chooses cases any kind of uh, body such as the supreme court in the united states which does pick cases on the basis that what will be the impact of law and it will then arbitrarily pick and choose cases so you're seeing failure at multiple levels in terms of ensuring even the promised outcomes under these regulations that the government wants to ensure that there's a free and fair digital ecosystem which is one of the claims that this will ensure that the arbitrary decisions of platforms will be checked by it i don't think so that's just possible given how uh, it's been done in the past for the television or the radio sector in india and how it's proposed under these rules adding to what apar has already said the gse yes has multiple concerns and there are multiple levels um, he already spoke about the infeasibility and how impractical the creation of such a body is con- uh, given the large volumes of appeals that are filed against content moderation decisions taken by intermediaries and we also have to remember that there is a very contracted timeline now for intermediate intermediaries to 
um, address these grievances. So that's the impracticality of such a body. Now coming to the constitutionality of such a body, it essentially does not have any legal basis because such adjudicatory, adjudicatory bodies can only be constituted by the legislature. And if in a case, these bodies are constituted through a subordinate legislation, it can only be done so if the legislature permits the executive to do so. The IT Act does not contemplate uh, or permit the union government to appoint an adjudicatory body to decide on permissible content. What this does essentially is makes the, through the creation of the JSE, the bureaucrats essentially become arbiters of our online free speech. And also, uh, this executive uh, constituted committee, basically what will happen is if once they start to, like Apar said, pick and choose content because they, they're not, they can pick and choose content that has not been raised by users, right? They can, they can do, do so by their own will as well. What this will lead to is it will incentivize social media platforms to suppress any speech that may not be palatable to the government. For instance, uh, controversial political uh, content, right? So that is another way it can really significantly harm uh, users' uh, rights. You fear that it'll simply be picking and choosing its cases, not based on a you know structured effort at creating precedent, but rather at sort of pursuing its own ends. Is that is that right? You can go back to one of these um, to the IT rules uh, prior to these amendments, right? And the Bombay High Court and the Madras High Court had um, stayed particular sections of the IT rules, particularly Rule 9.1 and Rule 9.3, contain in Part 3 of the IT rules, uh, which subjected any content that was published by publishers of digital news media or OTT platforms to governmental oversight. Now, uh, these rules were stayed for the very same reason we have critiqued the proposed creation of JC, is that they make the government-appointed committee the arbiter of permissible speech which could censor contents for grounds that are outside the article or extraneous to Article 19 of the Constitution without providing any procedural safeguards to protect fundamental rights of citizens. So there is a very, very real possibility of ambiguity in enforcement and absence of regulatory clarity that will emerge due to court challenges uh, to the Constitution of the GSE. Also, the GSE, the amendment to the draft amendment to the ITUs only define the GSE and uh, talk about the uh, functions it will undertake. The rules that will talk about, say, the how, what the composition of the GSE will be, what the qualifications to be a member of the GSE will, with the, all these, uh, the rules that will define these factors that will have a significant impact on how independent or autonomous the GSE is actually uh, is yet to be released. So considering that as well is why we've critiqued the functioning of the GAC because it can lead to arbitrary enforcement also because of the sheer volume of appeals arising because there are millions and millions of social media users in, in India. So uh, I'm curious to know whether there are any, whether there is any public concern over, over these IT rules and sort of like how do they impact the public, right? And sort of like, what are the implications for regular folks? And sort of like, what's at stake for them? So I think for me, uh, the most concerning clause contained in these IT rules is the mandate to identify the first originator on end-to-end encrypted messaging services. 
as I said, that simply because our lives online and offline are sort of bloody, there's, there's no binary lives we lead. And everything that we do is intertwined with, you know, the devices we use and the ways we connect uh, with other people over the internet. So right from, you know, pictures of my two-week-old nephew to my very, very sensitive, you know, personally identifiable data, you know, starting from my national identification documents to my transcripts from school. I have all of this information online. There's very little about me that I don't have online either, you know, in a cloud space or, or you know, um, on, on a messaging platform, information that I may have shared with my friends and family. Now, anytime that someone wants to talk to me, exchange personal information, you know, get some information about me or vice versa, we're going to turn to an end-to-end encrypted messaging service. Uh, the couple of, or, or rather the, the few end-to-end encrypted messaging services that are used most commonly in India include Meta's WhatsApp, uh, Signal, and Telegram. And uh, the functionality or rather the, the technology that they use basically means that Nobody except the sender and the receiver can access the information shared on a chat, right? Or if it's a group chat, then it then it's extended to those people who are on that platform, on, on that on that group. What the government's suggesting is that an end-to-end encrypted messaging platform needs to either use some sort of way to tag the information of the person sending a particular message on the platform and include that with with their identity or use some hashing mechanism against which they should be able to match the message sent. So basically, if I were to send a par a message saying, hi there, exclamation point, that is going to generate a particular hash that's going to be very different if a par sends me a message saying, hey there, exclamation point. Even though if you see the meaning of these messages is the same, right? So you know, before we get into the technicality of how this happens, let's just say that if this identification, the first originator of information on end-to-end encrypted platforms is uh, enabled, which is in any case not feasible, it's not feasible to use any of these, any of these methods that I mentioned to enable this, this identification, it's going to be devastating for security reasons, for private, privacy reasons, and it's going to break the most key technology that keeps us safe online, that's encryption, especially end-to-end encryption. So I'm going to stop there and turn to Tejasina Bar. You asked whether these rules were critiqued in India. Uh, I would say that these rules were critiqued internationally. So here, I'd just like to first, before I go into, so encryption, definitely one of the most concerning provisions. I'll speak about one more concerning provision. But before that, um, I'd like to quote a statement from uh, three special rapporteurs of the United Nations who wrote to the union government after these rules were notified. And I quote here, uh, these rules do not meet the requirements of international law and standards related to the right of privacy and to freedom of opinion and expression. Also, uh, they've been condemned by international digital rights organizations uh, who have experience in global platform regulation policies and practices. Access now has stated, and I quote, new rules expand on alarming human rights infringing measures. And the Electronic Frontier Freedom has uh, said, and I quote, "These, these rules threaten the idea of a free and open internet built on a bedrock of international human rights standards. So, when these rules were um, notified, obviously it received a lot of um, criticism and 
one particular uh, very very uh, prominent feature that was uh, new here i would say was there were fresh classifications mainly uh, social media intermediary and significant social media intermediary these were two new classifications and the threshold for a social media intermediary to be considered as a significant smi was 50 lakh or 5 million registered users so that was a threshold now uh, these categories bring a high level of government discretion in determining which platforms need to comply with what regulations and what level of regulations um, also there within that provision there is uh, rule 6 under rule 6 the government may by order require any intermediary to comply with obligations Im- imposed on an ssmi so if it satisfies the threshold of a material risk of harm now this threshold a material risk of harm is very very vague and it enables the central union government to enforce discriminatory compliances uh i just like to add to tejasi that in addition to the uh, the parts of the rules which have been condemned in international forums there have also been challenged in close to 17 cases in different high courts which are now being sought to be clubbed and transferred to by the supreme court now within these 17 cases uh, the primary part which has been challenged has been part 3 of the rules which deals with the regulation of online media uh platforms which may be something like a uh, scroll point wire or something like the daily beast i would have posts uh, in the united states as well as online streaming websites such as netflix and amazon interestingly they have not been challenged by any online streaming platform uh, but uh, the challenges by themselves have resulted in court orders in which different high courts have in fact issued uh, injunctory relief against the application of the rule not only against a specific party but we have a thing called public interest litigation in which uh, parts have been stayed against publishers digital news media platforms um, specifically on part 3 for um, and um, in addition to that i think uh, one other high court madras high court has indicated that the power under the rules itself um, which is created in part 2 which respect to certain uh, kinds of social media regulation can cause a chilling effect now um, all of this is important to consider given that these rules by themselves when have been criticized internationally or have been litigated and have been injuncted uh, in a limited manner by courts are now being sought to be amended one would imagine that the amendment would be to cure these legal deficiencies however none of the amendments seek to address it the amendments in fact um and civil society response seems to be that it further undermines digital rights so it's actually doubling down on injuries to uh, privacy and freedom of speech and expression and i think that that's a very worrying sign just in terms of the intent of rule making on platform regulation in india could i also jump in very quickly to say uh, completely agree with apar i think you know when when i saw that there have been uh amendments made to the it rules i was quite hopeful and then you know there was uh, there was this one moment when you know as an organization we saw that there had been amendments and then half an hour later or 40 minutes later the amendments had been pulled down and then the government came back with those amendments uh you know and and as a power said 
none of these concerns you know raised by civil society technologists digital rights organizations had been addressed in fact what the amendments do is add more ambiguity to the to the it rules because there are there are very very broad um you know unspecific sort of amendments added to the it rules and what they essentially do is that they that they make private actors uh such as social media intermediaries um liable for a lot of things including you know respecting the fundamental rights of indian citizens and that's in my mind that's the same as asking private spaces to conduct surveillance for the state which is technically uh not legal not appropriate and uh, it's it is not the responsibility of a private actor to comply with something of of this nature so um you know that the amendments don't really don't really lift any doubts or any sort of they they don't do anything to uplift any doubts around the it rules at all so now i'm sort of curious about what have uh, you guys sort of observed about these platforms as a response to these new rules have there been any backlash or or, or has there been any pushback from platforms i think um, the platforms um, behavior in india i think they're not a homogeneous block but uh, largely they also are <laughs> but um, they essentially conduct most of their work um, in india through industry bodies and they file their submissions through them secondly the ministry itself doesn't make the submissions public so we don't know even though the consultation has been concluded it's a public consultation what has been their official response on record however at the same point in time we do know that platforms are not happy with the it rules the changes which are being proposed but i think their focus more in terms of any kind of press reportage has been around the compliance window or the or the uh, criminal liability provisions so it's more in terms of uh, yes we'll comply but we we'll have a problem with it because ultimately they are businesses right and in india if you just go by the wall street journal's reporting on what resulted in a certain partisan bias in facebook's moderation practices in india its public policy chief ankitas's email actually says that sorry we can't do it because uh, it would impact our business um, operations and the safety of our employees in india and i think that gets to the root of the matter right there so i think platforms in india uh, and i want people to really think about it especially who are in europe and united states they may not take the same policy positions they take in those countries so for instance facebook may have supported net neutrality in the united states but actually was uh, wanting to roll out a, a free basics uh, zero rated platform in india and uh, it will be the same with uh, other companies as well uh, which operate large businesses in india because india to some degree also is not the country in which they are primarily developing they are headquartered they are open to higher degrees of public scrutiny accountability pressure by the engineers etc 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 maybe we can ask that question to get more specific um in terms of the um twitter's lawsuit yesterday i mean clearly this is the first um as as far as i'm aware the first kind of like big pushback from a platform um against uh some of the the recent uh behavior that some of the takedowns and the trouble they've sort of got in with different civil society groups and journalists you, you know do you do you expect more of this sort of uh, legal challenges from the platforms are you observing them kind of 
um, beginning to maybe take a, or at least in the case of Twitter, um, what do you make of its, its slightly more aggressive stance? So, uh, well, in Twitter's case, uh, context is that Twitter has reportedly moved the Karnataka High Court, challenging the illegality of the government's content takedown order. Um, now, this is following Twitter's actions last month, late last month, where it withholded several tweets and accounts in response to legal requests made by the government. So, um, and again, if you go back to 2021, early 2021, uh, this is in the context of the farmers' protest, Twitter was ordered to block a large number of accounts uh, that were posting content about the farmers' protest. Um, uh, Twitter had blocked, I think, these large number of accounts uh, on uh, February 1st, 2021 in the afternoon, and by evening, they restored those accounts, uh, following which Twitter did receive uh, warnings by the government of criminal proceedings in case of non-compliance. So a lot of these uh, platforms are complying with these rules um, because there is um, a consequence to non-compliance, which is they could lose their safe harbor immunity and there could be criminal proceedings initiated against them. But we have to uh, see to what uh, extent they're complying. For instance, if we look at Facebook, um, we know that uh, in their compliance report, they have, uh, they talk about, you know, how they're taking down 95% of the fake speech content uh, or uh, hate speech content rather, 90% of identified hate speech content. Whereas the Francis Hogan uh, disclosures clearly reveal uh, where Facebook internally admitted to only taking down three to five percent of the hate speech content. Similarly, in case of Twitter, while it has been in the past years complying with these takedown orders, it has now pushed back and basically is seeking clarity on uh, these government takedown orders. So, um, because of the criminal and the safe harbor losing the immunity, uh, because of the consequences that come with non compliance, platforms have been complying with these uh, rules and but you know it's yet to be seen how especially after twitter bringing this case against the government what follows and i mean um it's difficult to say if such aggressive uh, take if you can classify it as aggressive um, is followed by other platforms just two observations i think in my mind the first big platform to move uh to, to, to sort of move to court against the government, in my mind would be WhatsApp. Uh, because they filed the first lawsuit against uh, the traceability mandate. And then soon after, uh, Facebook filed its preemptive uh, lawsuit against the government, citing the same things, even though at that moment and even now, Facebook does not have uh, sort of universal end-to-end encryption on its messenger. So that was a preemptive lawsuit. These, these two lawsuits came very close to each other in terms of chronology. Um, but in my mind, also, India is a huge market. So it is difficult to predict the behavior of large platforms, especially, you know, as they try and negotiate with the government and try to see what flies and what doesn't. And uh, I completely agree with agency that it's going to be, you know, one day at a time when we'll have to see how platforms respond to the government's takedown notices or, you know, the developments that happen in the IT rules, because uh, these rules are nowhere close to be finalized. There are still, as Apar mentioned, you know, a bunch of 
uh, lawsuits against tight rules which are which are you know pending against the supreme court now so we'll we'll just have to see i think you know if there are policy leads or senior executives from these platforms listening to this podcast you know what would you want them to understand about the current situation what would you want them to do what would you hope that they would do in this context uh justin uh thank you so much for putting placing that question i think uh modern platforms or people uh, who may be in government i think there's a larger community of engineers who are deeply passionate about values of internet freedom about the promise of technology not only within the united states much much globally to improve the lives of people they see digitization as something which helps bring financial inclusion support uh civil and political rights more broadly i think there is a constituency of people there and i to a lot of these people i would say that play pay close attention to india because india right now and there's a lot of comparison between india and china where uh, we've been pitted as neighbors and rivals and much more recently possibly uh, the chinese um, being a inspiration for india in terms of it wanting to control the internet more but i think we are moving more towards a regulatory climate of threat intimidation control and centralization of power which we've seen in russia and turkey and um, I, I, that's that's what i would uh, want people to do just pay closer attention to what's happening in india and i think by itself that may lead to a lot of positive action criticism and thoughtfulness around what kind of products are being built what kind of policy proposals are being placed in international forums so justin i you know on on behalf of the organization i represent uh, we we believe in the power of community i think we're stronger together and i think there is great great power if we amplify the messages that we've heard today the internet has has made wonders happen right it's changed our lives and it's 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 such a great force for good and the internet should not be confused with facebook i'm not saying facebook is not um, you know an essential service for a lot of like small businesses and individuals what i'm trying to say is that the internet is essentially an infrastructure it facilitates so much more than just conversations it facilitates business and you know health services critical infrastructure there's no end to what the internet facilitates and going back to what i said about you know those layers of the internet i think what we need to be extremely sure about within this community that i'm mentioning is that those layers of the in- internet should not be manipulated they should not be risked and they should not be i don't know just just interfered with the internet is a great like decentralized permissionless space that helps us innovate helps us all come together and therefore the the content layer of the internet must be separated in people's minds from the infrastructure layers and while every government you know is free to and may want to also maybe regulate sort of big tech and sort of large social media platforms intentional or unintentional consequences for the internet as an infrastructure must be guarded against and that is something that i think we need to be aware of just um adding to what apar and niti has said that uh, focusing my uh, suggestion to you know people sitting in the social media platforms um policy makers is that um, 
a lot of these conversation around these rules and also about social media platforms and intermediaries in general has been around censorship or content takedown so um a step to uh, that promotes transparency will go a long way and a very uh, specific example of that is that so far there has been a lot of um, opaqueness when it comes to the process or the algorithms that's followed by them for proactive takedown of content so some platforms like facebook and instagram they use machine learning technology that automatically identifies content whereas google uh, relies on automated detection processes uh, whatsapp has been the only uh, messaging platform i would say that has released a white paper that discusses its abuse detection process in detail and it discloses how they use machine learning so while whatsapp has made, made an attempt there uh, on how it proactively takes down content i think the lack of human intervention in terms of how it is monitoring these kinds of content and that is being taken down is problematic so a step a further step towards uh, transparency will go a long way thank you to each of you for for joining us today thank you for having us justin it was a great conversation thanks so much thanks and thank you That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to Angraj Singh. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.